0: Hello, and welcome to the American Writers Museum podcast, where we bring the power of the written word straight to your ears. Last week, we featured a conversation between Sandra Cisneros and Fernando A. Flores. This week, we are pleased to present writers Viet Thanh Nguyen, Cao Kalia Yang, and Vu Tran, who will discuss their contributions to the anthology, The Displaced, Refugee Writers on Refugee Lives. This conversation was originally recorded at the American Writers Museum. We hope you enjoy entering the mind of a writer. Besides being Asian, I'm also a refugee. And I feel kind of weird saying that sometimes because when you look at me, it's clear I've made the transition from refugee to bourgeoisie, um, from camps to clubs. In the last couple of years, I've been invited to some very expensive clubs that would never have included someone like me uh, before I won the Pulitzer Prize. And so I take that as an opportunity to go there and say things I shouldn't say. Um try to say some of those things to you tonight. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it's actually urgent um, for for me to acknowledge myself as a refugee, even though technically I ceased being a refugee a long time ago. You know, there are official definitions of what a refugee is, and I no longer fit that definition. But I'll tell you a little bit about my life story and why, why I still call myself a refugee. And that is that I was born in 1971 in Vietnam, and, of course, that was in the middle of the Vietnam War, and in 1975, when Vietnam fell or was liberated, depending on your point of view, my parents ended up on the wrong side. Uh, and so they fled with 130,000 other Vietnamese refugees to the United States. And they were put in one, to one of the four uh, refugee camps that were set up to handle uh, these refugees. And we ended up in Fort Indian Town Gap in Pennsylvania. I was four years old. So in order to leave one of these refugee camps, you had to have an American sponsor. And the problem was that there wasn't one sponsor who was willing to take all four of us. So one sponsor took my parents, one sponsor took my 10-year-old brother, and one sponsor took four-year-old me. So now I'm the father of a four-year-old and I can now see the world better through my parents' eyes and realize just how painful it must have been for them to have had their four-year-old child taken away from them. And of course, that's where my memories begin, at four years old. I don't remember anything about Vietnam, but I remember the refugee camp, and I remember being taken away from my parents, and I remember howling and screaming because of that. So my memories begin there. My ability to tell stories begin there. And that's why, somewhere in the back of my mind, I'm still a refugee. but you know, it wasn't all bad. Uh, I got taken away for three months or so. My brother, who was 10, got taken away for two years. You know, and so he tells me, that's how we know mom and dad love you more. Uh, don't feel too bad for him, he went to Harvard. Uh, then, just to rub it in, he went to Stanford, which is what you're supposed to do when you're Asian. Anything in the LS is like the Asian F, otherwise known as the B. Uh, <laughs> and as for me, it wasn't all bad Because being a refugee gave me the requisite emotional damage Necessary to become a writer And uh, <laughs> I've tried to pass that on to my son uh, Four years old He's your typical four-year-old He loves Legos, always wants more Legos And of course, you can't give a four-year-old everything he wants You have to deny him stuff sometimes You've got to say no So when I ask him, do you know why? you're not going to get these Legos? And he'll look at me, and he'll say, because you're a refugee? (laughs) That's right. That's absolutely right. It's important, I think, for me to look at my son and and realize that he's going to grow up, regardless of anything I do, sort of this American middle-class person. And I want to teach him something about who his parents and his grandparents are. We're all refugees from Vietnam. And I want to teach him something about empathy, about knowing what a refugee is and needing to empathize with them. Because it's very easy, number one, not to empathize with refugees. And number two, it's very easy not even to identify as a refugee when you're a refugee, So for example, uh, I've done a couple of talks to high school students in the last couple of days in Seattle and Portland, and in one of those classes, the, the teachers told me in advance, there are refugee students here. So I asked them, how many of you are refugees? None of them raised their hands. But I asked them, how many of you are immigrants? And some of them raised their hands. Now what's going on? Do they not understand the distinction between immigrants and refugees? Or is it that they actually understand what that is and don't want to call themselves refugees? Because I asked another class, What do you think of when you think of refugees? And they said, well, we think of boats and death and starvation (laughs) and refugee camps. So of course, maybe there's a disincentive to acknowledge yourself as a refugee, which is why it's so important for me to claim an identity as a refugee, right? Because are so many people who want to disavow this and disavow the necessity for empathy with refugees. Beginning with some of my Vietnamese brothers and sisters, I mean, for example, there are some former Vietnamese refugees or Vietnamese former refugees out there who are saying, we were the good refugees. But these people today, Syrians, for example, those are the bad refugees. Let me tell you something. I grew up in a Vietnamese refugee community in the 1970s and 1980s in San Jose, California, and there were a lot of bad Vietnamese refugees. Welfare scams, insurance fraud, cash-under-the-table economies. And we invented the home invasion. That was a phenomenon of Vietnamese gangsters invading Vietnamese homes that was so prevalent, the San Jose Police Department had to come up with that term just to describe what they were doing. Okay. So there were a lot of bad Vietnamese refugees, except now we've forgotten about them, and we'd rather remember people like my brother, Harvard, Stanford, Dr. Dr. He's, and we've forgotten that in 1975, the majority of Americans actually did not want to accept Vietnamese refugees or Cambodian refugees or Laotian refugees. And I had a very personal reminder of that. In 1978, my parents moved from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania to San Jose, California and opened perhaps the second Vietnamese grocery store in San Jose. And I remember at 10 or 11 years old, walking down the street from my parents' store and seeing a sign in a store window that said, another American Driven out of business by the Vietnamese. And I didn't quite know how to make sense out of that sign, but I knew it was obviously directed against people like my parents. And I thought, does the person who wrote this sign know that my parents work 12 to 14 hour days every day of the year in this grocery store except Christmas, Easter, and New Year's? Does this person know that my parents were shot in their store on Christmas Eve? Does this person know what my parents have been through in order to get to this country and to become the people that they are? And clearly this person did not know that. This person could not empathize. This person did not see my parents as human beings. This person saw them as Vietnamese, as refugees, as threats. And then, I went to a primarily white high school in San Jose, and there were a handful of us who were of Asian descent, and we knew we were different. And so every day, we would gather in a corner of the campus, and we would call ourselves the Asian Invasion. (laughs) So we, you know, the only language we had available for ourselves was the same racist language that was being used Against my parents. And at that time, I didn't know what I was missing. I didn't know that what I needed were voices like Vu Tran, Vu Tran, Vu Tran, to Americanize it, Vu Tran, Vu Tran. -tran." Calcalia Yang. I needed these voices of refugee writers and Asian American writers. And of course they existed. But I didn't know where to find them. I didn't know who they were. And I guess we can look back on this past of the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, and this paucity of refugee voices and Asian American voices, and we can say that it was partly due to structural racism. But honestly, it's mostly due to Asian parents. (laughs) Asian parents, you got to do better. Don't crush the dreams of your children who want to be artists. (laughs) Encourage them, nurture them, so that they too will one day grow up and write scathing autobiographies featuring you. (laughs) No, really. Uh, They'll grow up exactly like our two authors here tonight. Um, I'm so honored to be with them. Uh, They've done incredible work. I just want to tell you a little bit about them and give them some time to talk about their contributions to this anthology and then after that I'll tell you a little bit more about the anthology. Cal Yang, Hmong American author, but also just author of The Late Homecomer, a Hmong family memoir from 2008. It was a winner of the Minnesota Book Award and a finalist for the Penn USA Award in Creative Nonfiction and an Asian American Literary Award. She's also the author of the more recent The Song Poet from 2016, which was another winner of the Minnesota Book Award and was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award, Penn USA Award, and a Dayton Literary Peace Prize. Her forthcoming book is A Map of the World, a children's book, coming out next year, I believe, and along with six or seven other books, so you're gonna be um, like J.K. Rowling, I hope. Uh, <laughs> all right. And uh, over there is Vu or Vu Tran, uh, who's a novelist. His first novel was entitled Dragonfish. It was a noir novel that was really a a great read, as were both of um, Cal Koliang's books. Um, uh, And the uh, novel Dragonfish was a New York Times notable book. He is writing a novel right now entitled Intruders in Smoke. His short stories, and he wrote a lot of short stories, and I knew that because I had been reading his short stories well before he uh, became a published novelist. His short stories have been published in many places, but most notably, perhaps, anthologized in the O. Henry Prize Anthology and Best American Mystery Stories. He has an MFA in creative writing from, the, from Iowa, a PhD uh, from the University of Nevada at Las Vegas, and he's an assistant professor of of practice, practice in the arts and director of undergraduate studies in creative writing at the University of Chicago.
1: Thank you. I'm not going to jump down because they won't be able to get up. <laughs> there are these very real disadvantages that I face. Um, but before I do the reading, I'll tell you a little bit about me because I reckon none of you know my work. Anybody? Oh, uh, like three people. That's wonderful. Um, so, like Viet said, I'm mom. And before I start, I want to say thank you. As charming as Viet is, as fashionable, he's got this great big heart that remember so many of us along this journey. And Sylvia, thank you for creating space for a new audience for me. Um, I'm a Minnesota author. I think I come from a very literary state. Um, But it's also a very white state. It's a state where uh, we have more refugees per capita than any other state in the nation, but it's like 79% white. Um, We have the biggest Hmong population, and I'm a part of that population. My story begins long before America, though it began in December of 1980 when I was born. I opened my eyes to about 400 acres, Ban Vinai refugee camp. The Hmong had sided with the Americans in the America's secret war in Laos. When the Americans in the war, a third of the Hmong had died. After the Americans left, there was a declaration of genocide against my people. Gao San Patat Lao, the leading communist paper published, it is necessary to extirpate down to the root of the Hmong minority. So my family, like thousands of others, were waiting for peace when these big trucks came, and they took the men and the boys. And the women and the girls waited, and the days passed, and they go, they start looking, and they found their bodies rotting on the jungle floor, um, like fallen fruits. That's the story that I come from. But I was born on the other side of the river. I was born in a time when Mom and Dad said that they had nothing. They did not dare dream of presence. So when I was born, my grandma gave me a happy name. Go Galia Ya, the song of the dimple, or the maiden, the maiden of the dimples. So everybody calls me Dimples. I was born to embody some kind of happiness, some kind of joy, which is really incredible because, you know, another third of the Mong died after the Americans left. So two thirds of my people were slaughtered in that war. The population in Laos, and they give, and then these poor refugee parents gave birth to me. And they, they gave me a name, they said, to bring joy and to bring happiness to the world. They faced everything that the world could do in terms of death and destruction, and they dreamt of a future full of smiles and laughter for their child. So that's the place where I was born. I couldn't go to school. I was six by the time we left the camp, but it was overcrowded, 40,000 people on 400 acres. We got food three days a week. Couldn't go to school. And so from my earliest memories, I'd sit at the foot of my elders because suicide was the number one cause of death. All these people were killing themselves. And, and every time I hear it, the drum of the dead would beat, all the adults would cry, why are you dying here? Why are you dying in this place that does not want you? Get up, get up so we can go home. Home was a place I'd never known. I used to ask, ask my grandma, where's home? And she'd tell me a story of Laos. I asked my dad where home was and he'd tell me some imagined future in America. But I had this father who was determined that I get to live by my name. And so he used to take me to the tops of the trees because we couldn't leave the 400 acres. Um, And he would tell me, may I one day your little feet will walk on the horizons your father has never seen. He'd hold my hands, and I have tiny hands, tiny, tiny hands. And he'd say, the size of your hand and your feet, these things will not determine your journey. You are not a child of poverty, of war, or despair your hope being born the captain to a more beautiful future. And so I grew up with that kind of love around me. I think that is the only reason I can do the kind of work I do today. Because I was born in an ocean of love so deep that my feet have never touched the bottom, so vast that my hands have never touched the sides. And so, of course, when I was very young, i go to the library because We didn't have VCR. We didn't have much money. People knew that there were all these Hmong people. They didn't know what we were doing here. All along the streets and the sidewalks of my childhood, I can remember people saying, what are you people doing here? You're doing nothing but slowing us down. And then the laments, the regrets, the wishes, and the yearning to be understood that I could feel so poignantly from the adults around me. So shaped by stories, I became a writer. My first book came out 10 years ago, so I've been at this thing for 15 years um, so one of the questions that people have when you have a first-generation uh, writer from a community like mine that most newspapers described as preliterate, the most primitive population to enter the U.S., um, the question is, does she have another book? Does she have other stories to tell? That's a big question. Anne Fadiman, who's The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down, the first and the most well-taught book about my people in the world. You know, when she met me the first time, she didn't talk for a long time. She just listened as her husband um, asked me questions, and I tried tried to speak. And then she said, I was listening to see if you're a real writer or if you only had one story inside of you. And then she looked at me, and she said, but you are as real as they come. So when Via asked me to write about refugees— I wanted to visit that place where I was born, that hungry place that taught me so much about love, so much about hope, so much about belonging. And what I decided to write about were the Yang warriors. I wasn't brave enough to be a warrior myself, but I, I, I was a witness. So my sister, my cousin, and all these little hungry boys and girls, they were this, they call themselves the warriors because we got, people never think about refugees as international, but we're incredibly international because all the religious traditions want to come and share the Bible and share their faith traditions. All the different, um, countries, they have NGOs and other organizations that come into the camp. So we grew up surrounded by the world and among the forces that we reckoned with were Hong Kong cinema. So I grew up watching these long, elaborate dramas. So they were the Yang warriors, this group of children. And one day they went on a mission to get us food because we only got food three days a week. And this is from the end of my essay because I don't believe in ruining. I don't believe you can ruin the endings of things. Eventually we all die. Before then, we get to adventure. So this is from that adventure. For lunch, I ate fried morning glory that day. It was fried with garlic and seasoned with fish sauce. I ate it with broken rice on a white metal plate with peeling enamel. I never liked greens, but I remember the crunch of the Morning glory stalks and how the oil had seasoned my rice made it slippery, slightly sweet from the garlic. I ate it with the other younger children from the compound at the long table. None of the members ate the Morning Glory meal with us. They chose not to on their own accord. They understood that it was their honor at stake. They looked over us as we cleared our plates and licked our spoons, hungrier than even we knew for the taste of wild greens, a hint of freedom from beyond the fence compound we knew as home. They had been mere children before the meal, playing a game I was not particularly interested in. But after that morning glory meal, they became the warriors of my childhood in Bonvinai refugee camp. We'd all heard the stories of how our mothers and fathers and our grandmother went through a war, in Laos to bring us to Thailand. I knew we were survivors. I had not imagined us as warriors. Long before we left that dry, dusty, hungry place, it was they who taught us how to venture beyond our captivity. I see them now from the far distance of time and space, a group of ten children, standing on their dirt lines beneath the bright sun, At their center was Master May, a pot-bellied boy who stood without a shirt, his skin glistening with sweat, his shorts falling well beyond his knees in the bright sunshine, spine straight, gazing not at the world around us but within himself. I see at the edge of the circle the two girls, the five-year-old frowning away her discomfort, growing taller than her years, and my older sister Dao with her scar across her left temple, one of her legs, slightly shorter than the other, braced against the earth. They're glorious in the sun of my youth, the warriors standing for all of us. They taught me how to fight, so I I thought I'd share a little bit of that fight with you all today. Thank you.
2: I loved... Kalia's essay—it's—it's—I um, mean—it clearly is a small part of a much bigger world and experience, and I kept thinking that I wanted to to read the rest of it or to, to know the rest of it. Um, I uh, my name is Vu. Uh, I first want to thank Vit too for inviting me to um, to contribute an essay to this book, but but also you know a lot of people know this, but I, I do want to. Uh, to repeat how supportive Vit has been to, to so many different writers and, and so many different artists, um, especially with our background, uh, and how supportive he's been of me and my work uh, in so many different ways. So uh, I'm incredibly uh, grateful for that. Um, and also to underline, to put, you know, flash the lights, to flesh out this conversation... Um, about the refugee crisis uh, that has always been here uh, always part of uh, America's history uh, but particularly now uh, part of world history I think uh, is uh, again we're, I'm very grateful for for his work on that uh, front um, Vit and I have some a, a lot of similarities and then and then we depart in, in a lot of ways you know I was born in 75 my father uh, fought for the, uh, the South Vietnamese Air Force and therefore with the Americans. So once Saigon uh, fell to the north, he had to leave. And so that was about five months before I was born. So he left, and my mom wasn't sure what happened to him. We were supposed to leave with him. Um, I have a, a sister who's two years older and we were supposed to leave with him but then he had to leave without us. We didn't know what happened to him. We didn't know uh my mom didn't know he, whether he had survived or not. I didn't know for about a year. But anyway, I spent my first 5 years uh in Vietnam raised by my mother and her family. And then we you know totally her on her own, you know, uh, it was all her doing. She bought, you know, passage for us. Uh, my sister and I and her uh, on a small fishing boat, uh, you know, it was like 90 people, but it was probably big enough. It should have had maybe big enough for like 20 people, but there were 90 people on there. And we spent six days at sea. We were headed towards Singapore. Captain got lost, so we ended up in Malaysia. Uh, but we were incredibly lucky, uh, incredibly lucky, uh, given how many people have died how many people were traumatized and, and hurt along the way uh, my family and I were incredibly lucky we ended up in Malaysia and spent four months uh, in Pilabedong uh, which is one of the Pal- uh, Palau Islands in a, a refugee camp that the Malaysian government and the US government um, joined forces to um, to fund and I think it's, do you know that it stayed open until like 1989 right? Yeah yeah and uh, my father sponsored us. He had settled in Oklahoma of all places. he was sponsored <laughs> uh by a catholic priest i I grew up Catholic uh don't tell my mom that i'm still no um but uh so I met my father there um and uh, I, I grew up – I spent 20 years in Tulsa, and, and this is where I think our experiences really depart because I, I would have never come up would have. – first of all, I didn't have any Asian friends to come up <laughs> with a group, uh, but I would have never called it the Asian invasion. It, it wasn't necessarily that I was ashamed of, of who I was, uh, but it's like – I mean, you're almost conditioned to kind of self-erase in many ways when you don't see anyone who looks like you, uh, especially at that age. And I, I grew up very much um, uh, conditioned to feel that way, to, to want to... I, I remember obsessing over my nose, uh, as a lot of Asians are, and wanting, when I get older, I'm going to get a nose job, you know? Things like that. Um, and, uh, I mean, there's more I can say about that, but it, I want to mention that because... You know this whole uh, question of am I still a refugee? Um, It's almost a question of of, if am I willing to call myself a refugee? Um, And for a long time, it wasn't a question that I articulated to myself. But I think the the answer to it, whether I knew it or not, was no. And honestly, it was Vitt. This is only three years ago. Reading Vitt's interviews and his his work that I realized, why am I... I asked myself that question again. And, um, and I kind of started with that question in my essay, and I, I found myself uh, not sure... I wasn't quite sure, you know, how to define what a refugee is. Um, you know, the first thing I thought of was, you know... Maybe some of you are familiar with Hannah Arendt's famous essay, We Refugees, where she talked about how, you know, as a Jewish refugee, this is, I think, it's published in 43. Um, as a Jewish refugee, she said, we refugees, we, we don't want to think about the past, not only because it causes us pain, but because we don't want to reveal ourselves in that way to people. So we concentrate on the future. And in a sense, we are, and this is a quote from her, we are you know, the avant garde of, of, of our people, um, the future, in a sense. Um, and that was the only kind of satisfying definition I can think of. Uh, all the other ones that I found, dictionaries, didn't quite work. So then I, I, I thought maybe the better question is to ask what is a refugee like? Uh, because this is my tool set as a writer. This, the, the tool set of artists is to, to deal in metaphor, in, in analogy, and comparison. Because that's when it really feels, uh, that's when things resonate the most, I think. When, when you deal in metaphor and uh, uh, comparisons. So, uh, you know, uh, basically what I offered in my essay was um, a taxonomy on, on refugees. Um, You know, I compare refugees to orphans uh, in various ways. And I, you know, compare refugees to uh, an actor. Um, And I also compare them to to ghosts. So I'll read this portion of, of the essay. For those who can never quite accept her, a refugee is like a ghost. To them, she's come from another world, an obscure and incomprehensible world, and now resides in the shadows of this one, an alien entity, an intruder. She can be invisible even though her presence is felt. If she is seen, she might very well be seen through, a specter both present and distant, both acknowledged and denied. She can be spoken of in whispers but also caricatured in the stories that contain her. She can be feared even when she is not there, sometimes irrationally so, more significant and sinister than any version of herself that she could have conjured. And in that sense, she can be mythologized. She is seen as a manifestation of the past and a dark, and as a dark harbinger of the future. Though it can be argued that the anxiety she inspires is little more than a projection of the beholder's personal fears, deeply rooted in religious, political, and cultural beliefs that are themselves a mythos. That's all to say that a refugee's outsized effect on people, on those who cannot accept her, is motivated more often than not by the imagination. What they feel, though, is not imaginary. It is real and consequential. If anything, it is imagined into being. And that space between what is real and imaginary is ultimately where the refugee resides. Like a ghost, her state of being to others and even to herself is ambiguous. Her identity, her goals and desires and intentions, her place in the world she now inhabits, they are all as hazy as those memories of the world she was once born into.
0: We're going to have time for questions from the audience. That's always one of my favorite things to do during these kinds of events, but we're also going to talk a little bit more about about this anthology. And let me, uh, let me tell you a little bit about it. Um, it actually wasn't my idea. The, the idea actually came from Jamison Stoltz, who's the editor of Abram Books. And uh, when the so-called Muslim Band was enacted uh, many months ago, he realized that he was married to a refugee. That had never actually come up before, <laughs> you know. Like so many, there's so many other people. You know, they, she called herself an immigrant until the Muslim ban forced her to actually acknowledge to her own husband that she had, in fact, come as a refugee from the Soviet Union. And so Jameson realizes that his children are the children of a refugee, and became very, he uh, became very active. Against this Muslim ban And so he came to me with the idea of doing an anthology Of refugee writers on refugee lives And there are 17 other writers besides me Who are involved in this And I'll just let you know some of the countries That they came from Uh, Afghanistan, the Soviet Union, Pakistan Vietnam, Chile um, Hungary, Mexico uh, Ethiopia uh, Bosnia uh, Iran uh, Zimbabwe, uh, Laos uh, Thailand. I'm not sure exactly where the or- where we would pin the origins of the Stateless moment.
1: Stateless child. <laughs>
0: um, so so many other so many countries are, are included in this collection, and it was it was actually really important that we pick writers because if we just wanted to do interviews or oral histories, there'd be an endless supply, right? But it was important to come up with writers because we actually wanted writerly essays. And there's something about oral histories and interviews that are obviously very powerful because they draw from people's real life experiences. So, for example, um, Alexandra Heyman, uh, who is from Bosnia, his his story actually is actually an interview of another Bosnian refugee. And you know, Heyman himself was a, a refugee from Bosnia, but he's working on a whole book. Heyman's working on a whole book about uh, Bosnian refugees, and he's collecting their life stories. And this particular life story is of a Bosnian refugee who lives a life that unfortunately for him is pretty much like the story of Candide, if you've read Voltaire's Candide, okay? You do not want this life to happen to you. It makes for great literature and a horrible existence. Um, But outside of that, almost everybody else is writing uh, essays uh, that are about themselves or about some kind of writerly take on the refugee experience. And I think this is really crucial because I think uh, one of the ways in which refugees become dehumanized and seen as other by people who are not refugees is that they're not seen as being people who are capable of something like speech, of something like creation, of something like telling us their own stories. And it was so absolutely important to have people who could tell their own stories. And in one of the reviews of this book by The Economist, it said, I like, I like quoting this myself, I'm not saying it about myself or, or, or the book, but The Economist says that this is the beginning of a refugee literary canon. Okay, and there are there are so many refugee writers out there, and I felt that this 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 you know, this was crucial um, that we are announcing ourselves as not only refugees but as writers, uh, and both of those things—being a refugee and being a writer—is uh, really anathema to many Americans. That was a joke. Okay. <laughs> Maybe it's I'm just bitter because I come from Los Angeles where no one cares if you're a writer. (laughs) But so far as refugees are concerned, let me give you an example of how problematic the existence of refugees is. uh, are in this country. Uh, Some of these Vietnamese refugees who came in 1975 ended up settling in Louisiana. And if you remember 30 years later, Hurricane Katrina happened and displaced tens of thousands of people in Louisiana. And some of the American media called these people refugees. And President George Bush said, it's un-American to call these people refugees. And for perhaps the only time in history, Jesse Jackson agreed with him. <laughs> A lot of these displaced people were African-Americans, and Jesse Jackson said, it's racist to call African-Americans refugees. I thought, that's great. We refugees have succeeded in bringing America together and hating us. <laughs> but I think there there is something fundamentally un-American about the refugee because we uh, You know, Americans like to believe in the American dream. And that's why Americans like immigrants. Even Americans who don't like immigrants like the idea that immigrants want to come to this country because it proves we're awesome. But refugees are the unwanted where they come from and the unwanted where they come to. And they bring with them the reminder that maybe our own lives aren't as stable as we think they are because Americans like to think only failed states can produce refugees, and we are not and can never be a failed state, except for Puerto Rico, okay? Yeah. So we might be a little bit closer than we think we are. Um, so that's that's the, the the situation in which I think, like those high school students I was talking to, that people are discouraged from acknowledging themselves as refugees, even if, in fact, they are refugees. And um, I, I want to turn the conversation back to our writers here. And uh, just talk about, you know, both being refugees and, and, and being writers. Um, maybe we'll start off with being writers because, you know, I don't know if, I, if you want to be just forever pinned as being, as being refugees, but uh, was it hard, given your backgrounds and your parents' backgrounds, war, refugees, and everything like that, was it hard to think about becoming a writer, much less becoming a writer, which I know is already hard,
1: you no, know, like like lots of immigrants and refugees. Mom and dad said that we needed doctors and lawyers. Lawyers heal what is broken in the human body. Every single adult body I know is broken. You know, once the shirts come off, once they wear shorts, like you see, I can feel shrapnel embedded in skin, in muscle, and in bones. Um, and so my older sister, though, won the Northland Elementary School spelling bee a year and a half after we came. Somehow, without speaking the language, she could take, a, take apart its, its pieces and piece it back together again. So we decided that she'd be an excellent, excellent lawyer, which left me. And so shortly after we came, and this is important to the story of my journey as a writer, and certainly my journey as a public speaker... Um, shortly after we came, my mom and I went to Kmart to, to look for light bulbs. And I knew the word light bulbs, but I didn't have the courage to say it out loud. And so I watched my mother, who was then only 25. I'm 37 today, to give you an idea. And I, I thought she was the most beautiful woman on earth. And because Laos had been the most heavily bombed nation in the world, remains the most heavily bombed nation. Uh, my dad had told me stories about how my mom grew up the most heavily bombed province of Laos. Every seven minutes, bombs, uh, American bombs would fall. And my mother, instead of running with the old men and women, would walk. Her chin parallel to the ground, he said. And so I had this idea, this, this, this memory of my mother's courage. Named me in a refugee camp because she never had enough to eat. Because every time I looked at her, she'd give me what was in her hand, what was in her mouth. She had six miscarriages after me. All little boys who, who came too early to, to join us in life. You know, But that day, my mother goes to the clerk, and she says, I'm looking for the thing that makes the world shiny. She points to the ceiling. She has a thick accent. So the clerk listened for a bit, and she started tapping her hand on the, on the counter. The faster the tapping, the harder it was for my mother. And once she struggled the words, the clerk walked away. Mom and I stood there waiting, waiting for 15 minutes. And then I saw my mother bow her head. In the heart of a little child, I decide that if the world that we live in doesn't, hear to hear, doesn't need to hear my mother, then it surely doesn't need to hear me. At work, my father was a machinist, and every time he tried to ask a question or talk, his supervisor would say, B, you're here to talk to the machines. You're not here to talk to us. And so I started a revolution. The next day, I, started, I stopped talking in school entirely, and I became what was called a selective mute. Years and years later, I tried, but the rust in my throat had gone too deep. I'll never sound the way I, the way I sound in my ears, in hm, in English. English, I'm just sculpting rocks into shape to make sense to a bigger world. I'm eternally breathless. I, I was born into a tonal language. Every breath that I breathe into the world carries meaning in my language. In English, I have to wrap the air in my lungs around units of meaning and then push it out. It's a very hard thing. So I, I, I couldn't talk anymore, and, and I, I just stopped talking entirely. In all those years when I stopped talking, I was still writing. And every time I made a mistake on the page, because on the page you don't have to meet people. You don't feel that, 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 that thumping on a counter. I became a stronger writer because every time I made a mistake, there would be a squiggly line and a question mark. What do you mean to say? You send a little girl chasing after meaning. You create a writer in the process. It would be, it'd be incredible if I could sit here before you and said, oh, I became a writer because of my refugee family. But I became a writer because of the circumstances of the world that we were living in, white Minnesota. And so and so at the end of college, I was still at Carleton College. I was still in American studies majors, women and genders, and, and I was cross-cultural studies because I thought all these things would make me a good doctor. I didn't understand that those are exactly the same things. You need to become a good writer to be interdisciplinary to see things from multiple angles but my grandma died the year i graduated and she'd always tell that education was the garden that i cultivated in america one day we would reap the harvest i knew that there would be no harvest uh, that we could reap together and so i started writing as a love letter to my grandma she was the reason why i wrote the love letters all the way to california when we lived in minnesota long distance phone calls were very expensive this is pre-cell phone days you know Um, And so I started writing a love letter, and that love letter grew. On page 37, my father said to me, "Menai, what are you doing? And I said, I'm writing a love letter to my grandma. And my dad said to me, If you dream in the right direction, the dream never dies. You never wake up. It always only grows bigger. The idea was born. Wouldn't it be great if the world could love her with me, this illiterate woman who had so much to offer the world of knowledge as I would know it as I live it? So a writer was born out of that process, that desperate process to be understood. Which is great, because now when I speak, particularly in communities that don't know my work, um, there's a lot of disrespect at times. You know, it, it, it doesn't matter to me so much, because I'm not looking for your agreement or disagreement. I stopped looking a long time ago. I'm looking to deepen your understanding of my humanity, and perhaps in the process, your own. A long time ago, my daddy said to me, you know, do you know, who, people would say, who are you writing for? Thinking that I was writing for this tiny little audience. And, and I would defy that, I would fight that every way I knew. And my, one day my father said, you know the person I gave birth to, her work will go beyond her gender, it will go beyond her people, it is for a bigger humanity. You are no less than that. You know, All of these forces converged in the heart of me. They live inside of me, and they drive the stories out of me, even in a, in a language that I struggle to be understood in. Uh,
2: you know, so when, when I got to the States, um, I, I think I told you I met my father for the first time. And um, it was only recently that I started remembering that for a long time, um, he... It wasn't so much that like he felt like a stranger to me, but I felt like a stranger to him. I felt like an intruder in on his life, um, and I, I, for a long time I didn't realize that. I didn't. Um, uh, I didn't make meaning out of that, um, and of course, that idea of intruding. I, I've always kind of felt like I was intruding. Uh, even in my hometown where I grew up, I always felt like I was an intruder upon uh, someone else's territory, and um, and then I re- you know I started writing when I was in first grade, and and I I think back now and I, I think part of what drove me and part of what delighted me about writing was that um, I, I think with with art it's good to be an intruder, you know it's good to to you know an intruder stakes out. Territory that is not theirs in some way, um, uh, they break new ground or they try to. um, They go into spaces uh, where they're uncomfortable because that's where the truth is. And so, and um, by the way, I wasn't as a first grader thinking these things. I am only now. Uh, I was kind of smart, but I wasn't that smart. Uh, But I I think about that now and. and, and I think that really appealed to me. And my parents really had no choice in the matter. You know, they knew that this is what I wanted to do. They were uncomfortable with it, as, as all practical immigrant uh, and overly protective parents are. Um, they just knew that they that I'd at least chosen a very respectable profession. You know, in Vietnamese, the, the phrase is van. It's a very kind of elegant, very, you know... Uh, it probably speak to their superior attitude about things, um, and they liked that at least, but they always were a little bit suspect of it. you know take a, an accounting class you know in college they take a business class, I took an accounting class and a business class just to please them. I think when the the moment that they started i think to really um, respect what I was doing, was when I started calling them and asking them stuff. When I started writing about Vietnam after I came... I came back to Vietnam in 98 for the first time since leaving. And after that I really directly started writing about Vietnam and my... um, and Vietnamese characters. And so I would ask them questions for research, especially my mom. My mom's a great storyteller. Actually, I would usually ask her because my dad is a terrible storyteller. So I would just avoid him altogether. But, but I think they they really um, they really started appreciating what I was doing, mostly because they saw that I was reengaging with where I came from. For me, what I realized is that I was finally kind of. Educating myself about myself. So if what I, you know, what I was going through growing up was a kind of, you know, unintentional self-erasure, I was now kind of filling in the blanks uh, by by just asking these questions. And I think my parents um, really appreciate that. And I think, <laughs> actually, I think the proof that they that, that they really like what I'm doing now is. Uh, This might be too much information, but four years ago, um, my mom, they they, they were, my parents were having marriage marriage issues, and my mom was very upset, and she called me up, which is something my mom never does with any of my siblings and I, which is to confide in us about things like this. She was calling me up, and she was telling me all this stuff that I kind of didn't want to know, you know? And and she then was asking for my advice, and and this is what she said. She said, "Well, your dad said you're a writer, so y- you you could probably help me." <laughs> uh, and I think that's evidence that that I got to the promised
0: land with them. I would like to thank. Um, the American Writers' Museum, for hosting us. I would like to thank um, Bo and Kalia for being here. I would like to thank all of you for coming out here in this evening. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the American Writers' Museum podcast. Tune in next week for a conversation with Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award finalist Leila Lalami about her forthcoming book, Conditional Citizens. Now go, be inspired, and find the mind of a writer in yourself.